Good morning. It's Pentecost Sunday. It's already been mentioned. Uh, Today is a day when churches of different stripes all over the world are going to be talking about this day in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit showed himself, moved in a particularly powerful way. Uh, It's a story that we're familiar with, I would imagine. Tongues of fire, great rushing wind, the apostles speaking in different languages so that people from all over the world could understand them. It's a good story. It's one of the greatest hits. But uh, there's a problem with stories like these. We run into problems. Uh, It's so familiar to us that it's really easy for us to kind of think about it as standing on its own. We kind of forget what comes before it. We forget the context, right? And when we do that, we lose so much of the story's power and we can get confused about some really basic things. Things like, who are the main characters of this story? Things like, who is it uh, who's actually demonstrating some power here? You know, because uh, it, it can be really easy to read the book of Acts and to, and to sit in awe of the apostles in the early church and think, wow, these people did some really amazing things. They must have this connection to God that I will never have. You know, but, but I think, uh, and on the last day, if Peter wants to correct me, he's more than welcome to, but I don't think that Peter wants all the attention or all the glory from this story because he's not the main character. But if we don't understand what happens before the day of Pentecost, we can read it that way. So I wanna remind you of what's happened right before this story because the first chapter of Acts is far too often skipped over in favor of this story because it's so good. You know, and, and, and these stories, y'all, do not exist in a vacuum. Every single story in scripture is interconnected from Genesis to Revelation, speaking to and through each other, uncovering just a little bit more and a little bit more at a time of the story of God and his people from creation to new creation. So let's talk about the book of Acts chapter one for just a second. I'm sure you'll remember that Acts was written by Luke, the physician and companion of Paul. He's also the guy who wrote, unsurprisingly, the gospel of Luke. And Acts is the second half of, the, of his work. Okay, we should consider Luke and Acts to be one work in two volumes. I've mentioned that before. Here's one of the reasons I bring it up again. It goes back to what I said before. Luke and Acts do not have different main characters. It's not that Luke is about Jesus, while Acts is about the church. They're both about Jesus. Okay, and let me remind you, I know uh, I talked about this not that long ago, but listen again to the very first verse of the book of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, that's the guy to whom Luke wrote this book. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Began to do. What's implied there? That the first book is about what Jesus began, and the second book is about what Jesus continues to do. It's not the acts of the apostles, it's the acts of Jesus Christ through the apostles. This book is about what Jesus did in the world by the power of his Holy Spirit and through his church. 
So really, it's the acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit through the apostles. None of the miracles, none of the signs, none of the healings happen apart from Jesus and his spirit. They're the main characters. And that is really good news. Such good news that we're not the main characters of this story. Because at the beginning of this book, the church really isn't doing too well. After Jesus is raised from the dead and spends 40 days with the disciples, they ask him, okay, Jesus, uh, this dying and being raised from the dead, uh, that's great, big fans. Uh, We're glad you're back. But are you finally gonna free us from Rome now? Or as I actually say in chapter one, verse six, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you gonna set us free, not just from sin, which is great, but from Rome? Are you gonna be the Messiah we want you to be? That political Messiah, that warrior king who's gonna set us free from the hands of our political oppressors. Is that who you're gonna be? When are you gonna do that for us? And Jesus disappoints them. He, He tells them to mind their own business. Basically, in verse seven there, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has appointed by his own authority, but he makes them a promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. And then the apostles see Jesus ascend into heaven. They watch him leave. This man that they followed for three years, they've spent every day with for the last three years. This man uh, whom they had to watch uh, take, be taken from them and whipped and killed and spat upon. This man who rose from the dead, right? They must have thought, man, we've got him back. If death can't hold him down, he must never leave us now. We've got him forever. But then he did. He left. And afterwards, they're just looking up like, what do we do? <laughs> He's gone. Our leader, our rabbi, our friend is gone. And so they go back to Jerusalem to do the only thing they can do, to do what Jesus told them to do before he left. Wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. And so that's what they do. They go back to Jerusalem to wait and pray. And not just the apostles, by the way, but Mary's there. Jesus' brothers, other women. Here is the early church in its entirety almost waiting. No idea what to do. Not only are they waiting, but there's also a problem they have to deal with. Starting in verse 15. You'll probably see a heading a few verses before that that says something like, Matthias chosen to replace Judas. They need a new apostle. And you know, they're not just replacing Judas to round out their numbers. Although, of course, it is very important that there be 12 apostles, just like there were 12 tribes of Israel. I hope you can see the the imagery there. Um, But there's more going on here. They're also doing this because there's a scandal to deal with. The church has been shamed by one of its most influential members. An apostle himself has betrayed the leader of the movement. They have to deal with that. They have to struggle with not only how Judas could have done such a thing, but also with how God could have let that happen. 
And so the church is not in a great place. They're alone without their leader. They're powerless. They're waiting. Their reputation's been tarnished. And that is the church to which the Holy Spirit reveals himself. That powerless, directionless, non-influential group of people are the ones through whom the Holy Spirit demonstrates his power and begins the spread of the kingdom of God. A church in exile, basically. You know, uh, we, we said earlier, I said, you didn't say anything. Uh, I said earlier, that's important to remember that the Bible shows this remarkable unity, right? That there's an interconnectedness from Genesis to Revelation, Old and New Testament beginning to end. This is not the first time that God's people have been powerless, directionless, without influence, unsure of where we go from here. Would you turn with me to the book of Zechariah? Chapter 4. Should be on page 794 in the Bibles in your seats. Zechariah 4, page 794. As you know, the Old Testament, the second half of it anyways, has a lot to say about exile. Israel goes into exile multiple times. Uh, the Assyrians invade, they go into exile. The Babylonians, uh, the Persians after that. Zechariah was a prophet who wrote during the return of Israelite exiles from Babylon, the return from Babylon under the, the rule of Darius the Great, which means, uh, if, you've, if you've been here, he's after Habakkuk, right? Because Habakkuk talked about the arrival of Babylon and Zechariah's writing in the wake of Babylon. So Zechariah's writing focused primarily on the rebuilding of the temple, uh, as I'm sure you can imagine, it was incredibly important that the temple be rebuilt. This is the place where they worship, where they make sacrifices. It's, the, it's the, uh, the center of cultural and religious life in Israel. This is the place where God's presence dwells in the land. It's got to be rebuilt. But you see, it just doesn't look possible. You know, the, these people have just come home. None of them have ever seen the land of Israel before. They've been in exile for generations. Uh, they never saw the temple before it was destroyed. There's no infrastructure. There's no construction companies. Don Acton isn't there to lead the, to lead the project along. Okay? They have no power, no direction, no influence in the world. But then, in chapter 4, God gives a name, Zerubbabel, and you'll have to forgive me if I mess that up once or twice. It's a real tongue twister. Zerubbabel. He was the governor of the province of Judah. He was the first leader of the returning exiles. He's in the line of David. He's a son of David. And God says, he, Zerubbabel, will rebuild the temple. Okay, so to take you through the first five verses, I know we've already read them, um, but Zechariah has a vision from God. He sees a golden lampstand with a bowl on the top of it. There's seven lampstands on top of that, seven spouts for each lamp, two olive trees beside the lampstand, and he asks God's messenger, justifiably, understandably, what am I looking at? <laughs> what is this? And here's what God says in verses 6 through 10. 
I'll read it for us again. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So here's the gist. A ruler in the line of David, a son of David, will rebuild the temple of God, but not by strength or by his own might, by the spirit of God. And so because Zechariah has this promise, he is told not to despise the day of small things. So don't be discouraged when you look out and see just one stone on the ground. Don't think for a second, how will this temple ever be built? How are we ever going to be able to do this? Don't do that. Because the son of David will do it by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Don't despise the day of small things. Because remember, on the day of small things, God is doing big things. On the day of Pentecost... Zechariah's prophecy is fulfilled. Jesus, the son of David, has laid the foundation for his new temple by the power of his spirit. And this temple is not one of stone. It is a temple of flesh. It is us. It's the church. The church is now the temple of God. You know, you'll probably remember that the church is called the new temple many times in the New Testament. Uh, maybe most famously in 1 Corinthians 3, when Paul asks the church, don't you know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? We, brothers and sisters, are the new temple of God. We are the place where God's presence dwells in the land. The new temple where the old promise is fulfilled, I will dwell with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. The book of Acts begins on the day of small things. When the church was without direction, without power, dealing with shame and scandal, uh, left alone, it seemed, by their leader. And the son of David laid the foundation of his new temple on the day of small things, by the power of his Holy Spirit. It was in their confusion that he brought clarity in their weakness that he demonstrated his strength. Don't despise the day of small things. On this day, <clears throat> when a small group of believers spoke about the mighty acts of God, not only was the foundation laid, but the blueprints of this new temple became clear, right? So this temple will include all nations, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and people from Phrygia, uh, people from the United States and China and Brazil, kings and servants, the poor, the forgotten, the outsiders, God will dwell with them and he will be their God. 
and they will be his people. He will be our God. We will be his people, every tribe and tongue and nation and color and socioeconomic group and on and on and on. Don't despise the day of small things. The foundation's laid here. And now, 2,000 years later, we get to participate in the work of Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit to keep building that temple, right? to, to keep going out and welcoming others into the kingdom, into the family, until that top stone that Zechariah was talking about is finally laid. And we read about that time when that top stone is laid in Reve- <clears throat> sorry, Revelation chapter 21, where John writes this, then I saw a new heavens and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. One day, brothers and sisters, the entire creation will be the temple of God. And there will be no place where God does not dwell. No place where sin, death, and the devil can hurt us anymore. There will be no place and no people that Jesus has not welcomed into his family. That starts at Pentecost. That starts on the day of small things. But the power of the Holy Spirit, renewing his church, renewing us, binding us to Christ and to each other, empowering us to share in Jesus' work of making all things new. And so my word to you this morning is don't despise the day of small things. This kind of feels like a day of small things. Doesn't it, the, the time that we live in? Uh, I know it was a couple of years ago, but we're kind of still, still have the, uh, the vestiges of it. COVID changed everything. You know, we, it reminded us of just how frail we are, just how delicate our way of life is, how divided we are as a people. There's very little in our culture that seems to contribute to Jesus's work of renewing all things. It's just empty promises, instant gratification, self-sufficiency. Get what's yours, no matter the cost. If you have to inflict violence, if you have to take advantage of people, if you have to look the other way, get what's yours. And lots of us are looking up, looking for traces of Jesus. Where did you go? What do we do now? It's the day of small things. Remember, that means God is working. God's doing big things. Jesus is still building his temple 
by the power of that same spirit who showed up on Pentecost. We have that same spirit working in us, moving us, guiding us to do the work of kingdom building, of temple construction. That same spirit is calling us to go out and to proclaim the mighty acts of God to each and every person we come across, to tell the gospel to the world and to each other when we need to hear it to participate in building the new temple of God. And the work is done not by our strength and not by our might, but by Jesus Christ and his spirit in us. And unlike every other construction project you've ever known, this one will come in on time and under budget. (laughs) To paraphrase Zechariah, the hands of Jesus have laid the foundation of this house and his hand shall also complete it. So don't despise the day of small things. He is working, and he's inviting you to participate. So go, go share the gospel. Go live like it's true, because it is. He is faithful to complete the work that he began on Pentecost. He will dwell with us. He will be our God and we will be his people through his son and by the power of his Holy Spirit. Go and do the work that he has given you to do. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.